Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Nashville Songwriter Hall of Famer Kai Fleming was named BMI Songwriter of the Year three consecutive years between 1981 and 1983. Kai tried her hand as a folk singer in clubs in Boston, New York, and Los Angeles before settling down in Nashville in the late 70s, where she teamed with Dennis Morgan and they began writing hits together. They achieved their breakthrough success by writing Barbara Mandrell's first number one hit, Sleeping Single in a Double Bed, and they never looked back. Kai has written songs that achieved 42 BMI awards, including 30 top 40 hits and eight number one songs. Her songs have been recorded by legends, including Barbara Mandrell, Charlie Pride, Ronnie Millsap, Wayne Newton, George Jones, Willie Nelson, Tina Turner, Bette Midler, and others. Incredibly modest and private, it is truly, truly a special honor to have her join us on Backstory Song. Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm your host, Doug Burke, and I am so thrilled and honored today to have Nashville Songwriter Hall of Fame member Kai Fleming on the show with us. Kai, welcome. Thank you. It's so great to have you here. Now, Kai, you've had an amazing career, so many chart-topping hits, which we're going to go into, but I'd actually like to go back to the start. I mean, you were a solo performer for many years in a wide variety of really cool places, frankly. But when did you start writing songs and why did you start writing songs? (laughs) Well, I was in uh, junior high. My English teacher gave us an assignment to write a poem, you know, and everybody turned it in. And I wrote this four-line poem. I didn't know anything about haikus, but, (laughs) but... They put it in a book and whatever, and I thought, hmm, maybe it is pretty good. I kind of like that. And then my choral teacher was really good friends with this English teacher, and that was kind of my pod there. I didn't grow up in Arkansas exactly. I mean, from that point on, I did. But I was a Navy brat, and we lived in California and Hawaii, and by the time I was in uh, junior high, we were back in Fort Smith. I'm kind of a loner. I think I always was. So a lot of time on my hands. And if you got a lot of time on your hands and a guitar and somebody liked a poem, then what are you going to do? You're going to write a song. I still am in touch with that music teacher. And I'm not in touch with many people over my lifetime, but I appreciate the encouragement that I got at that age because that really did light a fire. And I remember many, many, many years from that point where of, of just being, I got the, the living room and I could shut the door and I'd go in and play guitar for hours and hours and, and write songs. 
And then I ended up playing for different things and talked my way into playing for happy hour at a hotel and stuff like that when I was in high school. And so what was the name of that hotel? This is in Arkansas. Yeah. It was like a Sheraton, I think. I just talked them into it. They didn't do that that much back then, but I needed places to play. Hey. But you went on the road to Greenwich Village and to Boston. And then I went to college and I started playing Dixon's. Well, I'm supposed to be in college, but it was a great place to live while I played Dixon Street, all the clubs and bars up and down Dixon Street at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. And something I was just uh, that I just remembered a few years ago, I was at a, a thing for Emmy Lou, and I turned around and this uh, person said, "Hi, Rhonda." And I, huh. yeah, and she said, "Cindy Williams here," and it was Lucinda Williams, because you know her dad taught at the University of Arkansas. She said, "Yeah, I used to go hear you." She's younger than me. I used to go hear you playing in the clubs up and down Dixon Street at the university. And I had no idea. And that was, that was awesome. So it's pretty amazing to me because I imagine in this era, you know, this is like the early 1970s, there's a handful of female role models for you, like Joan Baez and Joni Mitchell and Carol King, but not a lot, right? And Dolly Parton. Yeah, not, not a lot, no. And they were singer-songwriters. If I was going to write, I had to be singing my own songs, you know, who else was going to do them? You know, it was a songwriter period of time back then. You know, there were a lot of songwriters, but not a lot of female songwriters, singers. So you kind of do the troubadour thing and get on the road to, you know, got to get out of Dixon Street and go see the world. I'll tell you how that happened. I was at the university, but I was looking around and I wanted to branch out a little bit, and I got myself a gig at a hotel in Tulsa. There's this table down in front of me of a few guys, and when I finished one of my sets, I sat down and started talking to them, and it was Elvis's band. So Elvis was in town playing. They were sitting there and listened through my, I mean, they were there, you know, for a couple of sets, and it was Jerry Sheff, Ron Tutt, Glenn Harden. Like the greatest session musicians in the world. They were with Elvis for years. Yeah. And they were LA based at that time. I don't Well, they were kind of based all over, but he was recording in, in LA and that's how I ended up out there because Jerry said, look, you're really good. And if you want to come out to LA, I'll help set you up with a publisher. So I did a friend of mine, my dog and my Ford Econoline van headed out to LA. And you're sleeping in your van you're with your guitar? Yeah, I can't remember that much back then, but I was not sleeping in that van. We ended up out there and I got an apartment. It was only about a block from, I didn't know where to go, a block from the Chinese theater. Oh, Grumman's Chinese theater there in, on Sunset Boulevard? Yeah, I rented one for nine months. So then Jerry set me up with a publisher. I went, played him a few songs and he signed me. And so we did a few demos and whatever, and I got my first cut on the twin boys, David and Andy Williams, sons of the, you know, Andy Williams and his brother, David. They performed it on the Sonny and Cher show. What was the name of that song? Falling, Falling, Gone. Do you remember where you were when you first heard it, like on the radio and, and what that feeling was like? No, they sang that one on the, on the Sonny and Cher show. 
Now, how did I feel when I saw them do it on the same show? That was pretty cool. Anyway, so I played around a few places. It wasn't easy to find places to play there. Oh, but one cool thing, Joni Mitchell was playing in town. And I went to the Troubadour, and I had a friend help me get in the second story window in the back while she was rehearsing. And it was the horn player who went on Miles of Isles with tour with her, uh, Tom, Tom Scott. It was just the two of them, and they were going over her songs and everything. And I was sitting, I was the only one in there. I, and I, had, I just went in the audience, and I sat, I sat about halfway up. And she'd look up there and just, you know, it was, it was just, they were fine with me being there. And I was in heaven. Probably thought I was waiting for them to quit so I could clean up or something. But anyway, that was, that was a highlight. Not long after that, I headed back to Arkansas because I decided to try out for the New York coffeehouse circuit. The reason I wanted to do that is I'd had it in the back of my mind since the time I was playing clubs in, in Fayetteville, because when I was there, there was a female singer songwriter from New York who was on the circuit. And I heard her at one of the things that the school put on. I went up to her afterwards and started talking and and we just, we hung out most of the evening just talking. And, you know, it was like, finally, a woman I could talk to who was doing it. They were sending her to colleges and mostly the the East Coast. And I'm not sure where all she went, but clearly she went to Fayetteville, Arkansas. It was amazing. And that that was just a shot in the arm. It's like, okay, I can do that. I can do this. That was before I actually went to L.A., but I remembered that. I went back to Arkansas, plugged in again to play clubs and stuff, and I got in touch with the woman, Marilyn Lipsius. It was the New York Coffeehouse Circuit, and I got in touch with her somehow. And, you know, keep in mind, no cell phones. I don't, I don't even know how I found out. All of this could have been done a lot faster, maybe, if there had been iPhones. I talked to her, and she set me up a gig at the bitter end to try out. I flew up there with my guitar in hand and played a set and she signed me. So far, so good. So then I went back to Arkansas and I, and they, they would send me a, a lot of places where the East Coast people couldn't go because it was too far. So I did a couple of years going to uh, Boise, Idaho and, and Pocatello and a lot of the Midwest towns around Chicago and stuff like that to schools. You were not a cover act. I was not. And come to think of it, I said that and then come to think of it, you know, most people were actually did do covers. Let's see. Then what? What do you want to know? So then you go to Boston. Oh, okay. So in 1975, I thought, okay, I'm not ready to live in New York. So I'm going to go to Boston. So in 1975, I go to Boston and I get a place in Cambridge to rent you know how it is. It's like in the city, you know, that people leave discarded furniture. It wasn't a furnished apartment. So, so I, you know, went through the streets and picked up a few things. I was only a block away from Harvard uh, Square. So that was cool. And Passim's, I didn't know about it before I went, but I found out that it was, you know, the hip place for folk singers and whatever. And so I tried out there and I sang there a couple of times. But also, Jonathan Swift's in Boston had just opened, 
And so I went over and I tried out and they put me on as the first, and they're still there. So they're still rocking. And, but they put me on as the first person to be a regular. So I had like, I don't know if it was one, one weekday or something, cause I was just a solo. Like a, a Monday night or a Tuesday night when they were slower, you were the steady gig bar band, essentially. I also went and talked myself into a Pier One Oyster House in Boston. I said, man, you know, you guys could really use some entertainment, you know? <laughs> and, so on. and back then, I mean, I was hauling around huge Altec speakers and I mean, I had a truck. No little bitty bows back then. I mean, you know, they were on the scene, but I didn't have any. And so, you know, I just have to talk people into, you know, helping me unload and load and all that. And it's like, wow, that was life. But man, I got him to pay me $50 a night and, you know, and I had a steady gig. Have any of the songs that you wrote and played from that era been recorded? No, just the one that those kids did. So there's like this treasure trove of material. Yeah, no idea. I where I don't have anything. Nothing. You don't have any recordings of that? There's it doesn't exist? No. Oh, we gotta dig this up. And you but you remember the songs, I imagine. No, I don't remember. No. No, it's like, you know, you just keep going. Oh wow. You know, it's crazy. I bet if we put you on stage, some of it would come back to you. No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. (laughs) Okay. Our and, loss. and shouldn't. <laughs> okay. So you're saying this isn't your best stuff? No, no. It was just, you know, I don't know what it was. It was you were learning. Songs. Yeah. You were learning the craft. Yeah. And basically taught myself how to play guitar, but I wasn't bad because that was part of the reason it was so good to write my own songs because I, I could I could figure out these cool little guitar things. Well, it was my song. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I never did learn how to actually sit down and and work out somebody else's songs. You're done playing Jonathan Swift's in Boston. You go back to Arkansas or do you go back to Nashville? While I was playing Jonathan Swift's, I got to know this, this kid and, and he had a manager in New York and he had that manager come hear me in Boston. He wanted to sign me. And so sure. He wanted me to move to New York. And so sure. (laughs) And so So this is pretty funny. He set me up in an apartment until I could find something. And lo and behold, it was on top of Carnegie Hall. Okay. (laughs) That that was crazy. That time in America, that was kind of like a seedy neighborhood around there, wasn't it? Oh, no, that that was fine. Where I found an apartment was seedy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was really, really bad. Like Amsterdam Avenue, they used to call uh, Heroin Alley, I believe. Oh, nice. So, yeah. I don't know what they called my alley, but it was between 8th and 9th on 46th. Oh, that's Hell's Kitchen. That's the Hell's Kitchen. And now Hell's Kitchen is really hip and cool. It's posh, right. Yeah. yeah. And back then, no, it wasn't. It was not good at all. Yeah. No, that's Times Square. And then, you know. You know, when you're, how old was I? I was 26. Yeah, almost 27, I guess. So, I mean, I was thrilled. You know, I'm in New York. What do I do? Well, maybe I could get a job because it's expensive and I'm running out of money. And so I looked in the paper and I decided I would go try and get a Sam Goody's music store job. 
And so I show up that morning and there's a line half a mile long. And, and I go ahead and I do, I got the job. Out of, out of a half mile long line, because you're more passionate about music than everybody else online. That's what I'm guessing. And so it was like uh, selling guitars and picks and stuff like that. And that didn't last very long because apparently I don't stay anywhere very long. But this manager, Ken Silverbush was his name. And, you know, nice guy. Did he know what he was doing? Probably not. I don't know. But he was he was connected to a lot of people. And so, you know, he, he got me in to play for a couple of places. And um, Steve Popovich at Epic Records put up the money for me to do a demo. By the time I got it done and, and all of that, <laughs> he had moved to another label, not in New York. That was fine, but it was like it was it was fun. It was a it was you a, lost your A and R guy. Yeah, exactly. It was a good experience. So then I'm trying all these things. I'm trying to put together a band to play at a newly opening club in Manhattan called the Lone Star Club, which is still there. I ended up after just being a little while in that apartment, moving out to Long Island about halfway out. And I started playing at this place called The Hobbit Hole. A lot of coffee houses, not a lot, but there were coffee houses back then, you know, in places. And so I played there a lot. The Hobbit Hole, in what town is that? Do you remember? Near Port Jefferson. Okay, that's pretty far out on Long Island. About halfway out. This guy who ended up being like a really famous writer you know, he interviewed uh, music people and all that. And, and he did an article on me and I've actually got it. Because it's like Billy Joel era, right? He's like doing Piano Man on Long Island. Yeah, yeah. Out there in Port Jefferson. And, and of course, I'm just paying attention to, you know, folkier music. And, you know, when you're that age, it's like you want it to clip along pretty fast. And it had been, but not fast enough. So I'm getting a little down and I thought, you know what? I'm going to call my parents and see if I could just come home, fly home for a couple of weeks. I just need a break. And I did. And they said, sure. And of course. Aren't parents nice? Take you back, you know? And I'm an only kid and I'm out, you know, buzzing around. They're glad to see you come home. Why don't you get a real job, Kai? Yeah. yeah. And uh, I don't know. I think they were afraid I would just disappear completely if they if they didn't just say, "Oh yeah, that's okay, honey." That's you know. They didn't say join the navy, did they? Or <laughs> no, <laughs> why did you join the military? <laughs> you know, they didn't ever give me advice because they felt like I knew what I was doing. Okay, good. They were so supportive, and they really would have loved for me to just come home and never said that. I mean, they were so supportive. Looking back, I don't know if I could do that if I had kids. That was all fine. I was, I had kind of hit a wall, really. It was like, you know, a lot of things good have happened, but I'm tired and I'm doing it all myself and still loading and unloading my own equipment and blah, blah, blah. And about 30 minutes later, I got a phone call and this only happened may, maybe once a year we'd talk and that would, and it was Jerry Chef again, who was responsible for getting me to LA and signing from Elvis's band. Yes. And so he called and he said, how you doing? I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he said, well, I was just calling to see if you wanted to meet me in uh, Nashville. He said, you ever been? I said, no, I only have driven through on my way to Boston or New York. 
he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going down in uh, about two weeks and just come. I'll pick you up at the airport. Got a place to stay. And because he had just started writing. And so he had a couple of meetings with publishers. And so he was going to set me up with them also. So that's what we did. I flew from New York to Nashville and Bobby Ogden, who was then the piano player for Elvis, picked me up with Jerry. We ate at a meet and three somewhere along the way. And I thought, okay, this feels like home. That's the first thing I thought is like, my God, this feels like Arkansas. I mean, and it felt really good. I just kind of relaxed into it and everything. And the first person that he had me see was Rob Galbraith. And Rob was interested in me as an artist when he heard me. And I thought, well, that that's cool. That's not exactly what I want to do. But that, uh, hey, are you kidding? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Got to start somewhere. Yeah. And the next day I saw Tom Collins. And I played three or four songs for Tom. And he said, yeah, you're you're really good. And he signed me. So to explain to people who Tom Collins is at this point in time. He was producing Ronnie Millsap, Barbara Mandrell, and Charlie Pride at the time. How many of those three have had any hits at this point? I think they all had something, yeah. but not much, right? Not, not too much. Well, Millsap had. Millsap had, yes, he had just had, um, it was almost like a song. So when I realized that, I thought, okay, yeah, that he's more pop, you know, and whatever. Cause you know, I didn't know what I was, but I was confident. I mean, I sat there before he signed me. I said, you know what, if you know what you want, tell me I can write it. I actually wrote music for this stack of lyrics for a Broadway play that Sammy Kahn had written. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. And that was a connection through the manager that I had in New York. So what was that play called? Uh, I don't have any idea, but I actually lost out to, once again, no iPhones, no computers, nothing. I lost out to uh, Carol King. But that was the first time you wrote for others. And so you knew you could do this. Yeah. Which really became one of your signature things. I mean, you were legendary for writing for others. Yeah, it was so much fun. I mean, I just freaking loved doing that project. And I'm not kidding, it was good. Yeah, I just sat down and I was totally confident in that meeting. You know, it was like I felt at home, you know, and I didn't have that much reason to be confident. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I think it was the first record that 
you get recorded for Barbara Mandrell sleeping single in a double bed. Yeah, I was, that was actually the second. She actually recorded one that I wrote alone before that, but that didn't, that didn't end up on the album. So, okay, I had never co-written at that point, you know, like Nashville will sit in the room. And, and so David Conrad, he was kind of what they called the tape boy and the second in charge at Pie Jam, which was the name of the company that Tom Collins, uh, that I signed to. He was friends with this kid who had been there for a few years trying to get a deal. And he said, hey, you guys should try writing something. This, Dennis, this is, this is our new writer. And so we met and he already had a, a writing gig with somebody, Bobby P. Barker, who was from West Tennessee somewhere. And so he didn't live there. So anyway, we wrote a song with him. And then I just remember thinking, well, this is fun. And then Bobby went back to his hometown the next day and Dennis and I kept writing and writing and writing. And I, I didn't co-write with anybody else for, you know, six years and neither did he, except a couple of songs that we did with Charlie Quillen, who also wrote for Tom. One of them was, I wouldn't have missed it for the world. And the one that Johnny Cash, oh, let's see. Um, you used to love me a lot. That's it. Yeah. But I mean, that was later on. It happened really fast. Sleeping single in a double bed. Barbara Mandrell records it. It goes to number one. Your second recording goes to the top of the charts. Do you have a number one party? We might have, but you know what? I really, I'm not kidding. I'm a loner. I didn't go to parties. I didn't go to, I mean, I, I went to the award things and basically I just, I just go up there and Dennis and I'd go up there and and I'd say, thank you. And he'd give a little talk, you know, and, and, and that was it. So if they had a number one party, you might not have even gone. Like they had the party without oh, you. It, you know, if it was a number one party, it wasn't, they didn't they do didn't that, that as much. Then. That started later. Yeah, I don't remember many. Maybe they did and I didn't go. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> okay, so here's the, the other important, this is a whole nother thing that made all of that possible or likely or a had to be thing. Here's the timeline. I moved there in August. I remember my connection was with Jerry Chef and the guys in the band and they had come to town because Elvis was going to record or something again somewhere. I went and hung out with them. They wanted to go to Felton Jarvis's place. We, and we all went out there and it was in Franklin somewhere in the country. You know, he had all of Elvis's memorabilia from all his movies and everything. It was fascinating. It was, it was amazing. And he played the album that he had just cut, the, the sides that he had just cut on him. So all that was fun and, and went to church with them in Franklin, Tennessee at this little, you know, downtown church. And so that, that's the backdrop for that. Sleeping single in a double bed, thinking over things I wish I'd said. What is this based on? Is this like, you're, are you putting yourself in Barbara's shoes in some way? Like what would her voice say? Like, how, how did you, you're writing for Barbara Mandrell, right? You're saying this, I need to write a song for Barbara. Yeah. Well, and you know, we had met in the office. All of a sudden she's got a female writing for her. I sang the songs and it was, it's just, it was just different. I mean, she normally had these guys, you know, writing songs for her and trying to get in her head or whatever. And I just had a 
female perspective in a lot of ways, you know, that they, they didn't, we connected, you know, our ranges were similar. And so it was just really easy, you know, just sing songs and she'd, she'd, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to give me, give me a copy of that. I want to, I want to work that up. So basically, yeah. And Tom would get ideas. Actually, he said, why don't you, I'll tell you a title. Why don't you write sleeping double in a single bed? And I looked at him and said, yeah, no, I can't. Uh, how about, and I turned it around. It's like, I can do that, you know? And, uh, and so we were on it. And so with Dennis's, he came from pop, just kind of, you know, like, well, you can hear it. He, he came from pop. Well, the, the critics maybe labeled some of this stuff, bubblegum country. I think we actually named it that. You guys named it that. You were marketing it this way. Yeah, because it was. I got to say, I love it. You know, it reminds me of the Sheryl Crow song, If It Makes You Happy, It Can't Be That Bad. Like when you hear crackers, you can't stop yourself from singing along. You know, it's just like so catchy, you know, and bubblegummy. And, you know, who doesn't like to chew bubblegum, you know? Yeah, there you go. What's wrong with it, right? (laughs) Hello, baby. I'm sorry I said the things I did It was a silly fight I was wrong, you were right What I really mean to say is You can eat crackers in my bed anytime Baby, you can kick off all the covers He was happy to be signed, and I was happy to actually. He signed in Jan. I signed in July. Once Tom realized, oh my God, okay, I got a team here, and he signed Dennis in January, I think, of of that next year. And so we were both just happy to have a gig and to be able to write for people. I mean, that was heaven. So you write "Fooled by a Feeling," years, which is goes to number one for Barbara, but also charts on both the U.S. Billboard and Adult Contemporary for both Barbara and Wayne Newton. Oh, I forgot that. Yeah, yeah. I was country when country wasn't cool with Barbara and the legendary George Jones. You know, you have this run with Barbara of these different songs, Crackers, of course. That was, a, that was another Tom idea. And I said, oh my God, okay, cra- you can eat Crackers in my bed. Oh, okay, okay, we'll, we'll do it. I just made it work. It's kind of, you know, I don't know. It it could have been even cornier, but it's like. (laughs) (laughs) So Tom suggested, write a song about eating crackers in bed. And you're like, ah, okay. You can eat crackers in my bed anytime because it's kind of a saying. Right. And it was like, okay. And so it just had to be bouncy and fun and blah, blah, blah. It just had to be that and whatever. And so we just took it on. Okay, here's a challenge. We can do this. And we did. Faded photographs The feelings all come back 
back Even now sometimes You feel so near And I still see your face Like it was yesterday How the days turned into years Years of hanging on To dreams already gone Years of wishing So why do you think years is, you know, this is not uh, bubblegum country. This is really a profound, beautiful, love, sad song in many ways. Is it a love song or a sad? It's it's sad. Yeah. It's uh, years of holding on to things. You know, it's, he's gone. He, he, I don't think it says he's died or anything, but he's gone and, and she just keeps thinking about him. So it's a widow. It's a song from a widow's perspective or, or, or a broken up love. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, it says I leave the hall light on, you know, and it, and it's kind of like, you can take it either way, but it's, it's sad. Pulls at the heart. And what were you thinking about when you wrote, what inspired this? When we would write for somebody, I kind of just put myself in some kind of frame of mind that's not me. I, I'm sure I pull from my own experiences and everything, but it's like, I don't know. It's like, it's like you're writing a movie, you're writing a play, you're writing something that's, that you, all I want to do is touch somebody else who's listening. I want to move the listener in some way. If it's a fun song, I want to move their feet. If it's a heartbreaking song, I want to touch their heart. And I always wanted to be positive, even in what you might consider negative songs. I always wanted to be positive. And that was due to the experience that happened to me right after I moved here. You know, I had an awakening a spiritual thing happened to me that could not be denied. And I know that that's why everything else happened so fast and so dramatically, because that was my focus. And this was, was just my loving of life and being so appreciative of everything that had happened to me and who I was and my family and my, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So Kai, tell me about this spiritual awakening moment. This is like a profound story in your life. You haven't written a hit. You've been sort of bandying about America. You've seen America. You write great songs. You have this talent and it's like this wellspring of talent. And then you have this epiphany, this moment. Tell me about this. Well, I had just moved here 
And Sylvia was the receptionist for Tom. Yeah, we became friends and she has her own spiritual upbringing with with her family. But anyway, so I, I did have somebody there who I could relate with on those terms, but it was like, that didn't happen until after the, right after this experience. So what happened was, because I had kind of said no to church and no to all of that because it was so the hypocrisy and the, you know, I just, it was, they didn't want me and I didn't want them. But I thought, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to go to that church that I went to, you know, when, when Elvis's band was in town, we went to a church in Franklin. And so I knew of that church. Well, that's 25 miles away. I drove out there anyway. I went in and I got up and I left because they said something that sounded racist to me and I, I couldn't go that. And so on my way back to my apartment, I stopped at a Baptist church and I went in the upstairs and, you know, in the balcony and, and I thought, God, this is just dead because I, I grew up in Assembly of God with my grandmother, most important person in my life. Then I I left and I'm going back to my apartment and Goldilocks and I see a sign that says future home of Assembly of God, blah, blah, blah. And and there was a phone number and I wrote down the phone number and I thought, okay, next Sunday I'm going to go. I had driven 25 miles and 25 miles back and two churches and and a sign. And this church that I'm going to the next Sunday is like a half a mile from my house. So I get up, I go, and everything in me, the music, there's nothing better than people singing when it's when it's really in a live church, when they're singing with their hearts and they're not paying attention to anybody around them. They're just, it's them and God. And I had experienced that when I was a kid with my grandmother and, you know, and my mom too. But, and then the preacher said, you know what? I don't think, I don't think I'm supposed to preach today. I think there's somebody here who, and I went, uh oh. Who's that somebody he's talking about? <laughs> yeah, I thought, no, 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 no. I'm not, I know I've been in these churches. I know what they expect. And I said, no way. I, I, it's not me. And then at the corner of my eye, I saw somebody else starting to go down front. And I thought, oh my God, this is big. This is it. I'm being talked to. I've got to do this. I went down. I mean, I hit the floor. I was bawling. All I could say later was I, was I knew then what it felt like to cry a river. I mean, I was pouring it out. And I had a talk with God and I said, you know what? I don't get this. I've worked all this time. I have scraped. I've done everything. I've I've been my own everything. And and now I've got everything that I've that I've been trying to get since I was 16. And now I'm 26. And and here it is. This is what I wanted. And if this is all it is, take me. I'm done. And I meant it everything, everything in me. It was like, I'm, I'm out of here. Please take me. This sounds so dramatic, but it was. All of a sudden, everything shifted. Everything shifted. And all of a sudden, I was in this love affair, you know, because I grew up that way. It was, it was Jesus was the guy. And it was like I was praying to him, which I had avoided for years. I went back to my apartment and it was like, that's all I cared about. I I mean, just 
this conversation that I had going on with him. This is, it was like, it was real. It was, there's tons to say about that, but fast forwarding, it's like, I can, I can look at everything that happened from that point on. See, we hadn't had a hit at that point. I moved there in July and this happened in October. And so is that experience in very specifically in any of your songs? Um, no. You don't think you can capture it? It's just too profound. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is your grandmother in any of your songs? Yes. Which ones? One that I wrote just a few years ago, just me on the piano, and it's, it's called The Prayers of My Grandmother. I am the prayers of my grandmother. And has this been recorded? I did it. I sang it, performed it in a documentary that was just done a few months ago, and it was supposed to come out, but because of you know the shutdowns and everything, uh, maybe they'll re-release it, but it's called Invisible. And I just wanted to, I didn't want to do a hit song. I just wanted to do that song. Yeah, that was one that I absolutely just poured out of me from the heart. It was one you were writing for yourself and not writing for someone else. <laughs> yeah. So do you, do you think you could envision that one being recorded by another voice, a, a contemporary voice? Or but is it just your song? That would be fine. I've never pitched it. But if you could pitch that song to someone, who would you pitch it to? <laughs> Maybe somebody like Amy Grant, mm. who did one of our songs. Yeah. Somebody who would know what it meant. I wake up every morning, throw some water on my face I look up in the mirror, I can see that nothing's changed 
I don't know why I go to bed I never sleep away All I do about you here Is lie awake and think Missing you Every night I call your name Missing sun comes up, the sun goes down, and I'm still missing you. Let's talk about Charlie Pride, who just passed away of COVID this weekend. He had a song, Missing You, which went to number two. That was the first hit that you wrote for him. And he had a really great song, not that that's not a great song, but uh, Roll On Mississippi, which you and Dennis wrote for him. I've been listening to these Charlie Pride songs all weekend. Um, you know that he, he owned our publishing company. Okay. I didn't know that. And he hired Tom to, to uh, run it. And I mean, Tom had a, a part ownership in it after a while, but he was a sweet guy. Really, really sweet. So you saw him all the time in and out of the office, no? He and his wife lived in Texas. They would just come up every now and then. He was just a great, sweet guy. I mean, you could feel it in the room. I mean, he was just, you know. So it's 1980, and he. how does Missing You happen? How does this song, how does, do you pitch it to him, or does he say, what do you got for me? I think Tom had probably, because he wasn't around, I mean, it wasn't like Barbara and Sylvia and Ronnie and Steve Warner. It wasn't like those guys who became buds. So it was funny. We, it had been, Dennis and I had had, a lot of hits at this point. There was like a Christmas party or something at the office. Dennis had had a little bit to drink. He, and he went over to Charlie and he said, Charlie, just tell me, why is it? We've had a bunch of hits and why haven't you, why haven't you cut one of our songs? And he said, I think you should. And Charlie said, yeah, yeah. Dennis said, well, I mean, we can write you something. He said, okay. And so we wrote Missing You and Roll On Mississippi, and he cut them. Roll On Mississippi was totally getting into driving back and forth from Fort Smith, Arkansas, over the Memphis Bridge, over the Mississippi River, coming to Nashville and past the cotton fields that are no longer cotton fields. Still see the little shacks and stuff, you know, the road trip. So I, I had a lot of of visuals. I think we kind of had, or I kind of had Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn in the back of my mind. Anyway, they pop up in the song and that was really a joy to write. It was just so fun. It was like writing a little, well, now it would be a video, but we didn't have videos back then. I could just see it all. And it was just really fun. And it was fun thinking about him singing it. And yeah, that was great. That was really, really fun. So missing you, will I wake up every morning, throw some water on my face, I look up in the mirror, I can see that nothing's changed. Who's he missing? That's just a relationship. It's kind of a, a broken up song, heartbreak song, huh? Yeah. But it's got a lilt to the music that keeps it from being so sad. Yeah. A lot of your work has that kind of counterpoint to between the melody and the lyric. Yeah. I felt, I mean, Dennis is a, 
good old guy, you know, and we had so much fun. I mean, we we were perfect to write together, just perfect, because he plays guitar great. He'd just sit over there and and just come up with all this stuff and, and say, don't play. Hey, and I'd say, play that. No, 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 no. Back up, back up, back up. What did you just do? What was that? No, play that, play that, play that, play that. It was so fun because he was full of, of interesting things over there. And I was hearing how to put them together a lot of times because I knew what I was trying to say lyrically. It was the perfect match. Mm, no kidding. You guys. Really amazing body of work. Um, and so I want to talk about Sylvia, Sylvia Kirby, a.k.a. Sylvia Hutton, um, a.k.a. Sylvia, who was the receptionist, as you mentioned. Yes. She hadn't been there very long when I got there, I don't think. She was just singing around the office all the time. And she, I mean, she had plans. I mean, she wanted to be an artist and she was planning on it. And that's why she came to town. And so Tom, I can't remember if he used her for for demos sometimes. I can't remember. I would think he might have. But she was just singing all the time. Then when she got a deal, we all, I mean, we had songs that she had already decided she wanted, you know, before she got her deal. And I don't know. Oh, just from hanging around the office. She's like, I want that one. I get my deal. I'm going to record that. Oh, yeah. Because she was looking. I mean, she knew that she was going to do it. Walking alone, whistling a song, barefoot and fancy free. A big river boat passing us by. She's headed for New Orleans. There she goes, disappearing around the bend. Roll on, Mississippi. You make me feel like a child again. River breeze like peppermint leaves. The taste of it takes me back. Chewing on a straw, torn over raw, cane pole and old straw hat, muddy river. Just like a long lost friend. Roll on, Mississippi. You make me feel like a child again. Roll on, Mississippi. Mississippi, big river road. You're the childhood dream I grew up on. Roll on, Mississippi. Mississippi. Carry me home. Now I can see I've been. I think of Proud Mary and Roll on Mississippi. These are like the songs about the Mississippi River. It's almost like untouchable at this point. Like, how could you do better than Roll on Mississippi? Anybody who wants to try to take on the Mississippi River, you have like this high bar to get over because this is the definitive song. Although like that Johnny Cash song um, was pretty darn good too, now that I think about it. 
Johnny Cash grew up right near there too, you know. So he he spent some time on the Mississippi, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, the song I'm thinking of is uh, da, 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 "Taught the Weeping Willow How to Cry, Cry, Cry." Yeah, yeah. Taught the clouds how to cover up a clear blue sky. Yeah. Tears I cried for that woman gonna flood you, big river, big river. That's the song I'm thinking. That is about the Mississippi River, of course. You know this roll on Mississippi. Um, the production values on this, it has everything in it. It's like, it's got the strings, it's got the steel pedal, it's got whistling and it's whistling in the song, which is just like, did you think of it that way when you wrote it? Like that it would be, have all these elements. The, the production was Tom and he loves strings and he, you know, and, and the singers back then, you know, they think they were the cherry sisters, the harmonies and everything. You know, yeah, the just, harmonies are great. Do you write the harmonies or did they come up with that? No, we just wrote the song, just guitar, vocal. That's all we ever used. Dennis has an interesting voice and, and I feel like, I mean, he sounds great on it too. And Charlie's voice, I mean, you know, geez, it's a movie. His voice is perfect for the song. I know that it was made a little easier even imagining it because of Dennis's voice. The same way with me and Barbara and me and Sylvia, you know what I mean? Yeah, we miss Charlie Pride. Boy, what a legend. Groundbreaker. Oh, my God. Why was he a groundbreaker? Because you were a groundbreaker. Think about everything that he, he went up against. I mean, being black and... He was a professional baseball player, like when Jackie Robinson was breaking through, right? And all the prejudice that he probably endured. And I'm sure that the reason it was possible was because of the mild person that he was, such good-hearted person. And it took that, you know, to keep from upsetting anybody. And, you know, and that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. I mean, I like to think that I'm that kind of person. I mean, that that's wonderful. It's a shame that we just haven't got past the black white thing just not past it even now and it's just so sad and look even with that look what he did in country music and i mean he became a really beloved character in country music you had some like you know middling songs charting songs you don't miss a thing was the first one in 79. I'm glad you got all this down because I don't remember. <laughs> I remember nothing. <laughs> Art on the Mend in 81 went to number eight. Sweet Yesterday goes to number 12. Yeah, I liked that one. That one, just like we did for Barbara, we wrote for her voice and we wrote for Sylvia's voice, you know, just keeping those voices in mind as we wrote them. But it's really not till 82 when Like Nothing Ever Happened and Nobody go to number two, number one, and nobody crosses over to 15 on the U.S. chart and five on Adult Contemporary. Yeah. Oh, nobody. 
songs that I can remember off the bat that that I had the idea and and didn't want to say anything about them for a little while. One of them was I was country when country wasn't cool because it could go a lot of different ways and I wanted to know what I was doing before even bringing it up to Dennis. And nobody was another one. It was like, oh my God, there's so many twists and turns. Yeah, the wordplay in this is great. And it was like, I was so excited. It was like a Rubik's Cube. You know, it was like, okay, I can, I can do, I can't do a Rubik's Cube, but I, but I knew that I could, you can feel it. You know, when you know that there's an end game, you can feel, okay, I can make it, I can do this. And we had a blast working on that because of all the twists and turns in the lyric was so fun and the music fun. I mean, that's all that was. Kai, you're kind of famous for, um, being such a stickler for words. And I often ask the songwriters on the show, how do you know when a song is done? And you kind of like are a polisher and a polisher and a polisher I've heard. Oh, rewrite, 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 rewrite. Was nobody a song that you rewrote until you like, and like, when did you know it was done? <laughs> Not necessarily rewrite. I mean, rewriting a line, rewriting a line. It's a process that you know what you want. You know the feeling of what you want. And you know that it takes certain words. Everything is vibrational, as we know. And so it either buzzes my body or it doesn't. When a line clicks in, it's like I feel it in my body. And and I'm talking about lyrically, but it's a combination too, because the lyric and the music, I mean, that's why it was so fun. Dennis and I wrote together, just the two of us for all those years, We went to the office every day for seven, eight hours. And that's what we did. We'd have a song or two songs sometimes going. We could hang with them. We weren't interrupted by, oh, yeah, I've got like so-and-so. I'm writing with so-and-so tomorrow, and I'm writing with so-and-so the next day, and -and so-and-so the next day. None of that. And I think that was really important. And it was so fun. I've just never enjoyed it the other way. So I like to really, really enjoy writing a song. (laughs) And if it takes a long time, I don't care. I want to want to milk it. You know, you just said something I've never heard on the show. and, And this is part of your brilliance. Everything is vibrational, you know. And I had never thought of that. Music and songwriting and the combination of sound and lyrics being sung vibrate in the air against your eardrum. That's what this is about. Everything is vibrational, you know. Okay. And so right now, as you're saying that, I feel it in my body. I've got tingles all over my body because it's true and because we're saying something important. And so that I feel it. Of course. <laughs> and the whole spiritual thing that that happened to me just clicks right in there. I mean, if something is off, it's off. And it's not activating vibrationally. It's not activating anything love or excitement or positive. You know, it's not, it's, you know, and even a sad song, even a sad song activates the body in a certain way. And that's why I was not good at trying to teach songwriting. I just, I wasn't good at it because what I wanted to teach them was that. How to make people vibrate. (laughs) And what they wanted was, you know, no, tell me how to write, you know, 
I don't know. When does it need a chorus? When does it need a break? When does yeah? And it's like yeah. Well, you you can feel for that. Nobody told me when a court. Okay, look at the layout of Sleep and Single. I mean, I don't know. Were there other songs that we didn't think about it that way? It was like okay, it's basically a chorus. There are no rules if it works. And then when that works, then other people start copying it, and then they call it a rule. I thumb away from L.A. back to Knoxville I found out those bright lights ain't where I belong from a phone booth in the rain, I called to tell her I've had a change of dreams, I'm coming home But tears filled my eyes when I found out she was gone Smoky Mountain Rain keeps on So let's talk about your work with Ronnie Millsap. Smoky Mountain Rain is, you know, one of the vibrational songs for posterity. I wouldn't have missed it for the world, Carolina. Where do we start? I guess the first one was Smoky Mountain Rain, which went to number one on the country and adult contemporary number 24 on the Billboard chart is the um, state song for Tennessee. When you wrote this, did you know that this song would be like a forever song? This is going to like last forever. People are going to be listening to this for a long, long time. I don't know if Dennis did, but I never thought in those terms, but I knew it felt big and it felt big partly because we wrote it for Ronnie, absolutely for Ronnie, for that piano, for everything. And we knew he would just nail it. It needed to be a classic sounding idea. Oh, I know what happened. Uh, we knew we wanted to write something for Ronnie and, and then, uh, and Thompson gave us another idea and it was Appalachian rain. How about Appalachian rain? And I know that he was thinking because of Kentucky rain, it was like, oh, yeah, that's a really hard word to, <laughs> to, <laughs> to deal with. <laughs> what rhymes with Appalachian, Tom? Nothing. <laughs> so we thought about where he was from and all of that. And it was like, well, gee, smoky mountain rain. We can do that. You know, I had this other young group, Bandits on the Run, on the show, and we talked about how the Eskimos have 200 words for snow. And this song made me realize that we don't have enough words for rain. And I started thinking, you know, there's Seattle rain looks a certain way. New York rain looks a certain way. London rain looks a certain way. And LA rain, you know, it never rains in California, except when it does, it pours, kind of looks this monsoonal way. What does Smoky Mountain rain look like? Smoky. 
smoky so it's kind of misty and yeah misty you're looking through clouds and you can't see that far in it i mean hanging on the mountains like in those clouds you can almost taste it huh in your breath yeah smell it so were you there when ronnie recorded it no i don't think we were there when he recorded it. they would usually call us in when it was almost done or when they were getting ready to mix or something like that you know and and we get to hear them but we were generally at the office writing more songs i see so when you hear this the first time oh they nailed it they so totally nailed it and that and that, that piano part you know it's like oh my god ronnie that's awesome really it's a classic it's a forever song and i wouldn't have missed it for the world is also a classic Our paths may never cross again Maybe my heart will never mend But I'm glad for all the good times Cause you brought me so much sunshine And love was the best it's ever been Wouldn't have missed it for the world Wouldn't have missed loving you, girl You've made my whole life worthwhile With your smile I wouldn't trade one memory Cause you mean too much to me Even though I lost you, girl wouldn't have missed it for the world. Very complex love song. That goes back to my story, too, because it's like the feeling that I wanted out of that was eternal love. So when you say it goes back to your story, you mean your spiritual story, your inspirational epiphany moment. Yeah, just wanting... I mean, to me, and I don't know if it does to anybody else, but to me, it feels uplifting. Mm, totally. Even though I lost you, girl, right? Yeah. And it ended up that, I guess it was Tom shared a letter with us from a couple in Florida, and they had, that was their song because their little girl uh, drowned in the ocean. I mean, that just uh, wiped me out. And, and if you, you know, even though I lost you, girl, I wouldn't have missed it for the world. And of course they felt that way. Have you gotten a lot of letters or, or notes over the years about this song or? No, maybe the artists do. I don't know. I'm sitting here right now and there's a, a wren on my, I've got a little suet feeder out there and I've only experienced that three or four times in this house, he or she just isn't leaving. And just, I mean, we'll fly away and come back. That's unheard of. Well, you want to talk vibrationally. What that means to me is that my mom, who uh, passed about three or four years ago, for my dad, I feel him when there's a hawk. For my mom, I feel her when there's a wren. 
And uh, so it's very special that while we're talking that that's going on. Think she's visiting us? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because I never thought of this song that way in terms of being about someone you lost. I, I always thought of it as a boyfriend-girlfriend. I guess when you write the songs, do you think of it in, you know, in those universal terms? Lyrically, I think of it in every angle that I can come at it from to see what to say about it. Even better if it fits more than one scenario that I can think of. I think the line, you've made my whole life worthwhile with your smile. Just the syncopation, the, it's just one of the all-time greatest lines. <laughs> you know, the internal rhyme of it. and I love internal rhyming. I, that's a must for me. And I like it when, when it's not obvious. It just goes by in the song, but that's another part of music, isn't it? If the lyric can be musical, then I'm really, really happy with it. If it can just have emphasis when the music has emphasis. If you hear a song playing somewhere, it catches your ear because of the structure of the song. Anything else you want to say about I Wouldn't Have Missed It for the World by Ronnie Millsap? Well, after hearing that story, I always go there and I think of them. They didn't know that the writers ever got to read that note. I think of it every time. I'm happy that it helped them. And, and that's reason enough for that song, whether it was ever a hit or not. You kind of morphed into a different phase of songwriting. Give Me Wings by Michael Johnson with Don Schlitz. And What About the Love by Amy Grant with Janice. You know, I think I sent you the video of uh, Dancing in My Dreams by Tina Turner. I don't know if you had a chance to look at that. I haven't. I just saw that when, when uh, we started. Which one of these do you want to talk about? I mean, there was a shift. Well, these all came, I mean, you know, I quit after 77. I signed in 77 and Dennis and I wrote until I quit. And I think it was 82. Yeah, you quit on the top. You were, you know, being my songwriter of the year and you're just like, you're just, I'm done. Yeah, writer. Yeah. I mean, Tom thinks that he burnt us out <laughs> and, uh, particularly me, that's not right. It was like, I just felt like, okay, I've done that. And that was awesome. And now what? Now, now what I want to do? And so I took off time and I didn't, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. But when I came back, I signed with the old Pie Jim crew, which was uh, David Conrad and Mary Dell. That was like homecoming. Kent Robbins, who was who great songwriter, who had been at the other company too, and Mike Reed. That's when, well, he, he was signed to Ronnie Millsap's company. He's a great guy. We wrote "There You Are." Ah, oh, "There You Are," Willie Nelson song. Yeah, oh. love Mike. He's he's awesome. I wanted to get back to writing some different kinds of music and some pop. And, you know, I just wanted to branch out a, a little bit. And uh, so that's what I did. But when I close my eyes 
Kai, tell me about one of your favorite songs that we haven't talked about yet. One is, I wrote it with Verlin Thompson. Uh, that was when I was, was with uh, Almo Irving, and, and it's called Cross My Broken Heart, and Susie Boggess cut it. That was a number one for her. It was really, it was just one of my favorite songs. There's a TV show that uh, Sybil Shepherd and Bruce Willis did called Moonlighting. And I was watching it one night and one of them said, yeah, cross my broken heart. And uh, ding, 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 songwriter, songwriter. You know, it's like, actually, that reminded me of being in a movie theater when uh, Tom Cruise said, you had me at hello or whatever that line was. I was in the theater and in Nashville, and it was like I heard all this rustling, and I thought, yeah, yeah, that's all the songwriters getting their pens out, you know, to, <laughs> to write down the title. But anyway, where titles come from. But anyway, I just wanted to say that I love that song. And why do you like that song so much? Oh, it was fun. It was fun to write. I loved writing with Berlin. It's really fun to sing. I actually sing it myself and then really, really love singing it. Just like it. It feels like a complete song. That was one you knew it was done really easily, huh? Yeah, I love that. You didn't have to rewrite that one. That one flowed smoothly, huh? And then Susie cut it and it went to number one. Yeah. I think it was on the Aces record. I'm not sure the name of that record. You've worked with so many different people. Obviously, you know, Dennis Morgan was this like sort of launch pad, but then these other people like writing this song for Susie, did you know it was going to be for Susie or was it just... You know, cross my broken heart. I just saw it on Moonlighting. Bruce Willis said this to Sybil Shepherd. Yeah, I was just writing with Berlin. You know, we'd been writing a few songs, and I went in the office and just I said, you know, I think this would be really cool. And and he again is a great guitar player and great singer too. We wrote a few good songs, and I was writing with Vince Gill some about that time, and we wrote um, something he had on his RCA album called "Losing Your Love." I'm losing your love. It's slipping away minute by minute, day by day. That one too. But he can sing, you know, the phone book and make it a hit. He's he's ridiculous. He's so good. So how does this song get to Susie, one of your pitch people? Uh, you know, it could have been Verlin. And they may have been friends or something. I can't remember how successful she was at that time, but she clearly was was doing well. The right voice for the right song. Boy, sometimes that's what it takes. Yeah. And yeah. And she sings it like a bird. So, you know, she's obviously a successful woman in the industry. You broke some of the barriers in some respects as a woman writer in the 70s, in the late 70s in the industry. Tell me any like unusual stories of being a woman at any of these like ceremonies or. <laughs> Yeah, CMA gave started giving. This was the first time they gave a triple play award, and that was for I think if you had three or more songs on the chart at the same time, something like that. And you know, it's so different these days. It's like people people are writing like you know multiple times a day with different people, and they're they're just writing so much more and so much you know, and and it's it you know it was just not that fast of pace back then. So they started this triple play award and, you know, I looked around and it's like I was getting an award and I was the only woman in the room except for photographers or whoever and uh, Tammy Wynette. So good company. So I'm standing around and afterwards and there, you know, different people coming up doing interviews and taking pictures and whatever, a whole lot going on. 
and this photographer comes over and, and I'm holding the award and, and he said, um, so whose award are you holding? <laughs> <laughs> My own. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the triple play award for having three songs in the charts. And you can't, you can't. <laughs> Do you want to take my picture now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know, you can't blame him. There just weren't that many of us back then. So it was kind of a systemic bias that you broke, but you didn't, you, you, I think you told me you didn't feel a lot of overt prejudice. I wasn't noticing it. it I was I was just doing my thing, just being me. I was just happy. I was just happy to be a little family, go into the office, write, do whatever, you know, it was just perfect for me. And I didn't, I didn't really notice what all was going on around me or not. Well, we thank you for breaking the barriers. Even though I didn't know I was doing it. Oh yeah. One other thing. So Sylvia and Barbara obviously were cutting our songs and Barbara got the opportunity to do, uh, it was a week or two weeks, might've been two weeks in Las Vegas. That was her first Las Vegas gig. That's how Wayne Newton actually came into the picture because it was at the frontier and it had, I don't know, it had something to do with him. But she asked Sylvia and me to go with her and her band in buses to Las Vegas and sing background. That was just a ball. That was so much fun. So Sylvia and I wore tuxes and, you know, we're so, hey, I've played Las Vegas. That's impressive. I did not know that. It was a little... And it was really cool because so many of the songs were, I knew them. Because you wrote them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, she, Barbara, here's another thing about Barbara. You know, she she's that way. Everybody even knows that about her, but it's really authentic. She's so giving. She's so, she doesn't have to be the star. You know what I mean? She's so, you know, she'd stand up there every night and, you know, and say, yeah, and Kai wrote this and that, and, you know, and, and Sylvia, you know, she's a beautiful singer herself and she's, you know, it was just family. I mean, it really, really felt like family back then. Just good times. Just looking back, it was just easy and slow and just the way I like it. So you were at the frontier? Casino? Yeah, I don't think that's there anymore. In the daytime, I went horseback ride. I, I took a cab out to some horse place and ranch and went horseback riding out in the countryside in the desert. Did you grow up riding horses? Mm, no. No, it was one of those stories where, you know, you don't know any better than to turn the horse back toward the barn. And then it's like, uh oh, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Once they start, <laughs> those trail horses, once they start going home, they know they're going home. Yeah, but I did always like it. So you're not a cowgirl. No, I'm not a cowgirl. And you haven't written a lot of Western songs like that about cowgirls and cowboys. No, and actually, it's kind of interesting that, you know, Denison, I really did without thinking about it. We just were who we are. And that kind of shifted Barbara's direction too, because she was, she was doing a lot more country sounding records before us. Uh, you took her in a pop direction. Yeah. Yeah. That was perfect because I think that probably helped them get interested in her as for a TV show too, the variety show that was more pop and, you know, everything just worked out. Thank you. 
Some people's lives run down like clocks. One day they stop. That's all they've got. Some lives wear out like old tennis shoes. No one can use. It's sad, but it's true. Didn't anybody tell them? Didn't anybody see? Didn't anybody love them like you? So you had some really fantastic songs with Janice Ian. You know, she had that song 17 and was this sort of teenage or young 20s superstar. And then she stepped away from music as well. And I guess you guys connected and wrote Some People's Lives and What About the Love, both of which are just incredible songs. You want to talk about Some People's Lives or? Yeah. She was writing for MCA Music, and they sent her to Nashville to write, co-write with some writers. And I had been writing, had written Give Me Wings and, you know, a few songs with Don Schlitz, and he was with MCA. And so he had been writing with her when she was in town, and he said, you know, you guys should try getting together and writing. And so we did. The first one that we wrote was called Don't Rush the River, and she's actually doing that right now for a nonprofit that she set up after her mother died, the Pearl Foundation. And she's doing an album of songs and she's put that song on there. So that'll be fun for me to hear. So that was the first one we wrote. And that one was to me a spiritual kind of song. So then we wrote here a little bit and then I would fly out there for a couple weeks at a time and we were writing out there and we wrote some people's lives and the story behind that one A friend of Janice's had a restaurant all in the kind of Hollywood Melrose Avenue, uh, La Brea area, and it wasn't doing well. And so we were going there every, we'd ride every day and we were going there for lunch. Sometimes we'd be the only ones in there. And one day she was sitting there and she, she was so down and she said, I think I'm going to lose, I think I'm going to lose the restaurant. And I don't, I don't know. I'm just, I'm so depressed. And, and she started talking about suicide and she said, I don't how can suicide be illegal? You know, how can, you know, anyway, she went into all this stuff. And so Janice and I left and she was taking me back. That was when I was still staying in hotels. She was taking me back to my hotel and she pulled up and we were just sitting there and I said, man, I've got to write. And she said, yeah, me too. And we went in to the hotel and started that song. It was powerful. The air was different. I can feel it right now. I can feel how it was in the room because we needed to write something about what we had just heard. It was totally out of, out of feeling that from Mary was her name, is her name. And we worked on it for three days. We didn't have the last line. It just had to do something. It had to, it had to be important and 
everything about it had to be right. After, you know, two or three days, that line popped in. And it was like, oh, my God, that's it. That's it. And so we went the next day. She had paper placemats. And I took out a pen. Janice had brought her guitar. I took out a pen and I wrote out the lyric on her placemat. And we sang it for her. And we said, this is your song. The interesting thing was that she was so happy (laughs) that she forgot totally about where that came from. And she was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God, that's my song? Okay, let's fast forward. Bette Midler cut it. I was back in Nashville by then, uh, maybe two years later, something like that. And she called me, and she said, I just wanted to tell you, I went and bought my song, and it's just absolutely wonderful on Bette. Yeah, it's the title track from the album. It's her best-selling album uh, in Bette Midler's career, I believe. Although it wasn't a single, and it's not really a single-friendly, you know, radio-friendly, I guess. From a Distance, I think, was the hit, the first hit. I think it four different singles. And they Which means really- a lot of people got to hear some people's lives because of uh, From a Distance. Yeah, yeah, because they bought the album, and it's the title. You know, Bette loved it enough that she named the album after it. You know? Yeah. And the line you're talking about in the chorus, didn't anybody tell them, didn't anybody see, doesn't anybody love them like you love me? Because that's all they need. Is that? That was it. Because that's all they need. Doesn't anybody love them like you love me? Because that's all they need. You know, when I hear this story in this COVID era, I really feel for all the restaurant owners in the world and, but, you know, particularly in our own communities who have really suffered and the workers in those restaurants. It's hard enough to make a go of a restaurant. Mary's didn't make it back then. It's hard. And then with this on top of it, I don't know how people are doing this. We have to love our restaurants. That's what I'm taking away from this, from some people's lives. We have to, because that's all they need is for us to love our restaurants and use the takeout until we get the vaccine and. Wear your mask if you're in a restaurant and not eating. (laughs) He asked her, what gift can I bring you To prove that my love for you is true He said, I want to make you forever and there's nothing on this earth I would not do she said everything I wanted you have given willingly and now there's only one more thing I need if you love me give me Give Me Wings, Michael Johnson went to number one on the country charts. And that was, uh, I think that was Billboard Song of the Year. So you co-wrote this with Don Schlitz, legendary 
we started writing together uh, over at MCA. He always worked in an office to smoked like a chimney and the, and the room would just, <laughs> and it was horrible having to sit there and, and I just, you know, but I did it. We wrote several things. It was really fun to write with him because he's a, he's a wordsmith too. So the day that we wrote that Brent Mayer poked his head in the door and um, said, what are you guys working on? And he said, well, we just finished this. And he said, play it for me, play it for me. We played it for him. And he said, okay, I want it. He took it to the judges and he cut it on them. It didn't gel. It didn't, it didn't come out right. And he said, he said, give me, give me a shot. Give me another shot. And he went to Michael Johnson and, oh my God, it just didn't fit with the voices or it didn't, didn't work that well as a duet or I don't know what it was with, uh, uh, why it didn't work for the judge, but certainly worked for Michael. And what's the song about? Songwriters uh, sometimes have titles that pop in and you hold on to it for a while or whatever. And sometimes you just get in the room. It's like, what do you want to write? I don't know. <laughs> you know, and, and we were just trying to come up with things. Well, that morning there was something about it. And it's, you know, it's not a new idea by any means. And I think I threw that out and it was like, well, you know, let's do a story song. It just kind of took shape, you know, it just worked. It's kind of like if you love someone, let them go, but it's a different angle on it. I remember too, we wrote it, we came back to it the next day, finally satisfied with it. And it was like, yeah, yeah. Brent didn't hear it until we had polished it and then it was done. I have had the total unique pleasure of you sharing with me an uncut song that you've written that you want to talk about called Sometimes She Remembers. You shared a demo um, with the music by Ben Cooper and a demo singer, Alyssa Bonagura. Did I say that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She says it's pretty out there, isn't it? I smile and say as pretty as it gets She gazes out the window And I wonder what she sees Another place, another time It could be just a dream But sometimes she remembers She looks at me and out of nowhere There's a glimmer I'm her daughter, she's my mom It's not the same, but nothing's wrong I appreciate the moments I have with her And it's okay if only one of us remembers Tell me about this song. So my mom had about 17 years of the slow exit of Alzheimer's and what a brilliant life and a sweet, brilliant exit. It doesn't always happen that way. I know. And a lot of people have a lot of hard times and I'm not saying it was all easy, I'm, but I am saying that for whatever reason, she was just <laughs> appreciative of, of life and 
people and everything all the way to the last day. She was just a, a light. My dad passed, you know, she had had it for three or four, five years and my dad passed. And then I had to eventually put her in assisted living and then in a nursing home. So, you know, it went through all the steps and, and the nurses would come in and she made their day. Why is that? Because they'd walk in rooms and she'd like, she saw them for the very first time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she was just, oh, honey, hi, you know, and it was just so sweet all the time. And, and it's hard working for, the, I, I just feel for the nurses who go in every day and there's so many hard things in a nursing home and, and especially nowadays. And one of the nurses who I got to be really good friends with, and I was driving down and back and forth from here to Fort Smith, Arkansas. I got her in a place in the country, all the nurses and the people who worked there, you know, they, they lived in the area and, you know, they'd all either had some a grandmother in there before or whatever, it, you know, so it was really a sweet place. And and one of the nurses I got to be really good friends with said, you know what, I don't think after my mom passed, she said, I don't know if I can do this. I, I don't know if I can do this. She's still nursing, but she she moved to a hospital to, to work, I think. And she just couldn't go in there without her being there. I meditate in the mornings and sometimes out of uh, out of a deep meditation. And I just, I just came out of this meditation and I actually just wrote out the lyric. The course. The, sometimes she remembers, she looks at me, and out of nowhere there's a glimmer. I'm her daughter. She's my mom. It's not the same, but nothing's wrong. I appreciate the moments I have with her, and it's okay if only one of us remembers. Yeah. Yeah. And then the verses are, are just absolutely things that she did, and probably the most personal song I've written. I was writing with this young kid, great piano player. And I said, I've got this thing. And he just took it and did the music on his own. It's beautiful. And you end with, it's like the calm after a brilliant storm has passed. That says it all. What more can I ask? Wow. I think we'll end on that, Kai Fleming. I think that's good. <laughs> this has been an amazing treat for me. Is there anybody, anything, any one you want to plug, say thank you or shout out to? I would like to thank this little Wren who just kept coming back over and over and over. And now she's left. <laughs> so it must be time. <laughs> and the Wren. So if the Wren was telling you any voice in America to cut your song, sometimes she remembers, who would you like to have cut this song? You know, who just popped in my head again, probably because it was Bette Midler. Oh, wow. There you go. Bette, if you're out there, we want you to cut this song. <laughs> Please. You heard it here first at Backstory Song. Please follow us on our um, social media. We've got a lot going on. We're releasing a song every day and an episode like this generally every weekend. This episode, we're going to release on Christmas Day for the spirituality of it. In your honor, Kai Fleming, I have to thank you. This has really been a thrill and an honor. Thank you so much. You know, I'm not comfortable doing these things. I'm so 
I'm in my heart and my head so much that I don't, I can't find words. And that's funny coming from a lyricist. Well, your words thrilled me, inspired me today, and I hope they inspire our listeners. Please share us. We're looking to build an audience. We need your help. Please, please listen to the Spotify playlist so our songwriters can get paid. Thank you very much, Kai Fleming. You're the best. Thank you. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.